from WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, we speak with veteran journalist Ray Suarez about diversity and the lack thereof in journalism. And after that, author, activist, and publisher of Sojourner Magazine, the Reverend Jim Wallace joins us to discuss progressive Christianity in the age of Donald Trump. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. It is not uncommon to turn on the news of choice and find journalists offering analysis on critical issues. We expect on myriad issues the presence of white male journalists will be well represented. But after that, who's on the air telling the story can become a marginalized process. It is expected that if the issue is race, there will be at least one African American, and likewise, if the issue is immigration, We can expect at least one Latino. Why is this problematic? And does it bring us closer to that more perfect union? To answer these questions and others is veteran journalist and author Ray Suarez. In a career spanning over 30 years, there is perhaps no one whose keen insight is more valuable on this issue. Ray Suarez, welcome to The Public Morality. Great to be with you, Byron. Thank you. You know, on the eve of the 2016 presidential election, you remarked that there were nine people on the CNN panel and no room for a Latino analyst or reporter. And I, I would imagine over the years, this was not the first time you've seen something akin to this. So why did this particular situation jump out at you? Well, in, you'll recall that in the days running up to uh, the opening of the polls on Election Day, a lot of the coverage went to the registration effort, the turnout effort, and the size of the Latino vote, and how it might make a difference in places like Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, Virginia. And here we were, and Nevada, excuse me, leaving them out, they're a big part of the story. And here we were on the eve of the election, and I looked at the television, and there were nine people sitting there, and just organically, just accidentally, you have to be in a situation where you specifically put a Latino journalist on the panel or else one will not appear. And I just couldn't imagine, here we are, um, one out of every six Americans, one out of every six, and you just cannot break in to CNN, to MSNBC, to Fox. They're rare, and when they're there, they're there to talk about what's perceived as specifically Latino issues. Do Latino analysts have anything to say about um, Donald Trump's speculations about the U.S. and the future of NATO? Do Latino journalists have anything to say about uh, the new Trump administration's uh, approaches to Russia? Uh, Do Latino journalists have anything to say about uh, the financial regulations that the Trump administration may undermine? Who knows? I'm sure they do, but because the pool is so narrow, 
and the uh, producers who put these programs on lack the creativity and the wit to say, who else should we be talking to? Who else could we be talking to? It just got me in a way, you know, I'm used to it, Byron. I've, I've been seeing this on television for years, but I think it just was a, a burr in my saddle uh, that, that particular morning when I looked up at the television and I saw nine people and I thought, well, how many would there have to be sitting there before you finally got a Latino on the set? 15, 20, 25? <laughs> would you have to put like a, a football team photo there to finally get one Latino journalist on that panel? It was amazing. Well, I, I'm uh... I'm asking for forgiveness in advance. I'm going to date you right now. We're going to go back to your Talk of the Nation days. And um, I want to, uh, I'd like to have you sort of t uh, tell our listeners, um, just from going back to Talk of the Nation up to the present, how are these decisions made when, you know, just sort of walk us through, we're going to do a show on X, they have a production meeting. How are these decisions made the way you could be that, uh, that glaring omission could happen? Well, because... These are often booked on the fly. Uh, you go to the people who have reliably helped you out in the past and are gettable. You go to people who have done good work in the past and are gettable. And you go to people who are known to the audience and gettable. And those things, when, when someone's already not in the circle, when somebody's already not on the list of people to be called, you end up getting a sameness to these panels because they never broaden the scope of who they think has something worthwhile to say on these programs. And as you point out, I've been booking programs like this for years, uh, not only at Talk of the Nation and NPR, but during my years with PBS and the NewsHour and more recently on my program Inside Story on Al Jazeera America, you had to broaden the circle or else you'd end up with the same people who always get called. So because I'm conscious of it, I tried to do better on that score and not have the same kind of people talking about the same issues over and over. But a lot of this stuff is done really quickly and under the gun, and you go with uh, safe names people you've had before and that that because you go with people you've never had you've had before you never broaden out who gets to talk and, and i also realize that um in, in one in one regard um say msnbc cnn or and fox are one animal um the news hour talk of the nation are another animal so uh so on that first one how much does ratings drive those types of decisions you know, I'm, I'm not sure that, that ratings are that important a factor. When you turn on MSNBC in the morning and there's Mika and Joe and Willie Geist and Mike Barnacle and Halperin and on and on and on, uh, you know, you, you could make sure that you have other people besides a phalanx of, of white people talking in the morning in a country where uh, we're talking about soon uh, a majority-minority country. Uh, but if it's not important to you, you don't do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm on those shows occasionally, uh, but, you know, it's, it's most days on most programs, most of the time, 
you turn on the TV, and if, if Latinos have opinions about anything besides immigration or the Latino vote, uh, two things that I guess they're understood to be able to talk about specifically, uh, you rarely see journalists of stature talking about foreign affairs, talking about the economy. They're there. They're bookable. They're available. They've got interesting things to say. They're just not called. And uh, what would you say, Ray, uh, is the crux of the issue today? Is it simply a matter of having more faces of color on air, or, or, how, or is it something more that, that, um, that's missing in the equation? It starts behind the scenes with producers and bookers. Unless you set the tone from the top with the host saying to the producer, we can't have the same old people on over and over and over again. We've got to be talking to a more representative sample of Americans. Unless you set that tone at the top and tell the bookers and tell the assistant producers, we have to do, a, do this differently, they won't do it. And you can tell which programs think it's important and which programs don't over time. Uh, you, I will I'm say sorry, that because, because there's a sort of... Um, circular nature that I discussed earlier to this, uh, national security experts, unless you particularly go for a minority person, you will have a Rolodex filled with white men because the, the way the system works, it just continues to develop white men as national security experts. Are there others? Yes, but you've got to make an effort. And sometimes in a time of uh, shrinking news staffs, and shrinking time to do even more work all the time, uh, you don't necessarily scout out those people who can perhaps give you a different way of looking at an all-volunteer army that's heavily minority, that can give you a different way of looking at who enlists in 2016 from the way uh, guys who've spent much of their adult lives at the Pentagon and in think tanks inside the Washington Beltway will talk about those things. You have to make it a point or else you'll call the same people over and over again. Hmm. Uh, does it also go deeper? I mean, at least which, which the points that you're raising here uh, as to why this matters more than just having the faces and the numbers, but why it matters, does it not go deeper to the meaning of our democracy uh, and our stated commitment to pluralism? Sure it does. Sure it does. It's a, it's a living expression. It's an editorial expression of an understanding I th and uh, you and I would submit a flawed understanding of the way America works. Once I had like something close to a meltdown in a newsroom I was working in in Chicago, where it was assumed that on topics like uh, renter's insurance and uh, real estate taxes and utility rates, you talk to white people. But if you were talking about crime and public education, you talk to black and brown people as if uh, a black person who's going to get a bigger gas bill next month isn't as concerned about that as his white neighbor. There were topics, and this wasn't a conscious process. Nobody was saying, okay, let's go talk to white people about uh, homeowners taxation, real estate taxes. It wasn't a conscious process where you say, oh, only white people care about real estate taxes. 
it was worse than that in a way because you subconsciously just said, well, who is this a big issue to? Who's going to squawk about this? Who's got the houses that are worth the most so we'll probably get the largest increases in the taxes they pay? And so we end up going through the well-worn and well-known ways of telling these stories to one of the most diverse metropolitan areas in the nation, which is what Chicago is and was at that time. I said, and I said and yelled, started yelling in the newsroom, why do we only talk to white people about the electricity bill going up? Doesn't everybody pay an electricity bill? And they looked at me like, uh-oh, here we go. Here we go. He's going to be on a tear now. But I really, it had finally gotten to be too much. We, we only go and talk to minority people about crime in schools and drugs and, and things that reflect pathology as if they're the only people who have to worry about it, especially now with all these white people dying with heroin needles in their arm. And we, we have this idea that financial questions are not something that everybody wrestles with. And it was, it was just reflected in that one moment as I saw a piece go out on my station because they went to a, a suburb where only one kind of person lived and they stuck microphones in their face and got what they had to say about uh, real estate taxation. And it reflected back to the community our idea of who cares about these issues, which it was a mistaken idea, a flawed idea. But there it was in flesh and blood and, and uh, camera pictures. Our idea of who cares about this reflected on television. And in issues large and small, it happens over and over again. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with veteran journalist uh, Ray Suarez. Yeah, you know, Ray, I, I got to tell you, in your, in your previous answer, when you said that you lost your temper, and I go back with you to talk of the nation, I just can't imagine Ray Suarez losing his temper. He just doesn't do that. So now you, no. you've, ruined, <laughs> you've ruined my perception of you permanently. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a pretty cool customer as a rule. But that, I guess that day in the newsroom, it just got to me like, here we go, doing the same thing, the same way, again and again. Uh, you know, local news has a big responsibility to a community to explain itself to itself. And if you go with stereotypical thinking in a newsroom, how will the community that you serve ever break out of stereotypical thinking? You know, we just saw a presidential election season where the now successful candidate, the man who's president-elect, was telling minority people that their neighborhoods are like hell, that you can't even walk down the street without being shot, that they are racked with crime and abuse and, and drugs and gunfire. You know, Byron, as well as I do, that that doesn't tell the story of barrios and, and our neighborhoods across the country. And yet, that was very appealing to a large number of people, and they elected that guy president. The news business, it, it's one thing if people are not well informed about the state of play in the United States. Our job is to help them paint an accurate portrait for themselves of what the country is really like. Um, and, and here was, a, you know, the, the subject that we're talking about is very much part of our whole reason for existing. Uh, it would seem to me, um, and I'm, I'm wondering, do you see a, a, a potential pushback 
on the efforts you ve- that you're uh, raising here in lieu of this uh, recent election? Every time I heard the phrase political correctness being used, I thought, the heck with political correctness. Why don't we just worry about correctness? <laughs> I think that would be a good, a good thing for us to talk about. The Saturday before last, President-elect Trump was making a campaign appearance, and in, in front of an enormous crowd, he said, the murder rate in the United States is the highest it's been in 45 years. I, I sat right up in my chair because it's not just a little wrong. It's totally, blatantly, extremely wrong. Then they cheered, and he said it again, and he said it was he was going to fix it. Now, that's a very disturbing moment because the people in the audience, when a candidate for president says that, they believe it. And when he says that he's worried about it and he's going to fix it, they cheer him. Now, the fact is, the murder rate in this country is the lowest it's been in most places in the country since the late 1950s. This is the safest it's been in decades. And I don't know why voters found it so appealing that a guy would actually paint a portrait of the United States that was more dysfunctional, more frightening, less coherent than the one we really have. We have a pretty good country. It needs improvement, and a lot of stuff needs fixing, and a lot of lives need improving. But to get up and tell tens of thousands of people, and I guess, by extension, a television audience of millions more, that the country is a wreck, and that, in fact, murder is the highest it's been since the, in 45 years, it was crazy, a crazy moment. And I thought, the hell with political correctness. This election needs a little just correctness. Um, I'm going to go back, uh, if I could, to to the the whole issue um, about uh, journalists of color on, on air. Uh, you know, it occurs to me there's also a perception that news bureaus are also guilty of. It's when you the sort of marginalization of, of of reporters and and analysts of color. Like for example, as you mentioned earlier, if it's a race issue, you know, we need an African American. If it's an issue of immigration, then and then the search commences to find a Latino. And given that, it, it, it doesn't also send the message that if these are the only issues that uh, journalists and analysts of color can discuss? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's really a problem. Because it keeps us, when we actually manage to jump through the hoops and make it into a newsroom, which is hard enough. I mean, just getting the job is hard enough. You're ghettoized once you're inside the newsroom. Instead of having the same um, aspirations to do the top story every night, to do the page one story, you end up on the, uh, the Chitlin circuit or the taco beat, <laughs> and you end up um, marginalized inside your own newsroom, even when you're talking to a general audience. It's one thing if you're working for the ethnic press, and it's a, it's a, different game and how you get ahead is a different thing but if you're in a newsroom that presumes to talk to the entire community the idea that you're just there to to cover one part of it and in one way is a kind of insulting idea and it it marginalizes us and it thwarts our progress getting ahead in this business you know you sort of touched on already ray um that 
this is an industry-wide challenge. Um, we recently had um, NPR CEO Yar Malm on the public morality, and he readily admits there's a problem. But like many others, articulating a remedy is more difficult. Um, you sort of touched on it earlier, but I, I, I'd kind of like you have you flush it out a little more. What, in your view, absolutely needs to occur? Well, look, um, part of the problem is a pipeline problem. There are too few black and Latino people graduating high school, and then after graduating high school, going to get a four-year degree in an applicable field of study. So there are fewer aspiring journalists in the pipeline. Okay. But you can find talented black and brown people everywhere in America. The, the challenge is really how to grow your numbers inside a shrinking business. Fewer people today are earning a living as a journalist in the United States than 15 years ago. And think of how much more content there is. 24-hour news, the Internet, constant updates in text, in video, in sound bites. Uh, the business and the amount of stuff it puts out is growing all the time, and fewer people are creating all that content. So if you are in a traditionally locked-out group of people, people who, even if you had the credentials, found it hard to get picked up by a news organization, your path forward, your uh, climbing the pyramid as it gets narrower and narrower toward the top gets more difficult because this is not a time of expansion of our business. But at the same time, the demographics of the country are changing in a way that more and more of the young people who are knocking at the door, trying to get into the newsroom, are going to be people of color. That's just inevitable. Uh, the workforce is changing. So that in a couple of years, even though the boomer overhang will be sizable and the audience will still be majority white, the growing parts of the audience, the largest parts of the audience of the future, are minority people. And, you know, you want to ignore that, businessman? Ignore that at your peril, I guess. We see it changing in commercials and billboards and <laughs> things like that, uh, variety shows and all those other things. The newsroom is a, just a different realm, and it's been very hard to break through. It would, it would also seem, based on your last remarks, that in this particular climate that we now sit, which I would describe it at best as a climate of uncertainty. Is that fair? Would you, would you give me that yeah, one? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Absolutely. It would seem now, more than ever, given your previous remarks, that we need an increase in diverse voices, not just black and brown, but just a whole array of diverse voices to try to make sense of this uh, uncertainty. You know, you're absolutely right, but here's what makes that complicated. If you are someone who uh, puts unpopular points of view from unpopular people on the air, unless you conform to newsroom cultures, and become like everybody who's already there, you don't advance. So we have this deeply embedded paradox. Newsrooms need minority staff in order to provide a diversity of viewpoint. And yet diversity of viewpoint is discouraged 
even from the people of color who get hired by newsrooms. So they make a show of trying to widen that circle that I talked about earlier. But in reality, getting ahead inside a newsroom uh, means that you have to pull your punches a little, pull in your, uh, pull in your legs a little so they don't, your feet don't get stepped on. Uh, you have to be careful about what you say and how you say it, because even though you are, at least at the beginning, uh, said to be there in order to represent who lives in your service area, the interests of the wider community, uh, getting as many viewpoints as possible going into the pot to make this great stew we call the news, really... Um, Safe opinions are valued more than challenging ones. Uh, safe people are valued more than challenging ones. And, uh, you know, getting ahead inside a newsroom culture where uh, you might find yourself the odd man out again and again and again, that's not a, that's not a recipe for long-term success in an organization. Nobody annoys their way to the top. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's that it's that great tension between why you're there in the first place, and then you say, "Okay, well, here I am. Here's who you should be talking to. Here's what you, we should be talking about. Here are people you don't know and who you don't talk to." And then they say, uh, "Well, <laughs> I didn't want to be that out there. <laughs> you know, I'm just I'm glad you're here." And I'm glad we can show the community that you're here, but I don't want you to uh, <laughs> to be some original ethnic primitive. Now I gotta, I, you gotta straighten up and uh, be just like everybody else who's already here. It is a it is a tough line to walk. Hmm. Ray Suarez, the veteran journalist, thank you so much for being on the Public Morality Day, sir. Thanks for inviting me, Byron. Good to talk to you. That was Ray Suarez. Coming up, I speak with the Reverend Jim Wallace about the plight of progressive Christianity in the age of Donald Trump. Welcome back. Every president election, beginning with George Washington, the American people did not know what they had until they had it. Perhaps those words never rang truer than with the election of Donald J. Trump as the nation's 45th president. Though Trump was supported by more conservative evangelicals, what does his election say to more progressive Christians? Joining us to discuss progressive Christians in response to the upcoming Trump presidency is Jim Wallace. Wallace is an author, activist, and publisher of Sojourner Magazine based in Washington, D.C. Jim Wallace, welcome back to The Public Morality. Great to be back, and I'm glad for people who believe that morality should go public. (laughs) Well, that that remains to be seen in in the in the days and years to come. Well, well you, I'm saying you do, and your your listeners do. So I'm glad to be on your show. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. Uh, well, let's just dive in. What does the election of Donald J. Trump say to you? Uh, this election 
was about race and all the people who are saying it wasn't are white people. And every person of color I know uh, knows it was about race. The election of Donald Trump uh, is the last is a last gasp of white supremacy. I'm hoping it's the death knell of white supremacy. But I'm I'm very much in agreement that a whole bunch of white working class rural white families have been completely marginalized by uh, the economic system and trade and globalization and technology, all that. And the elites in both sides don't care about them. That's clearly true. But Donald Trump turned economic resentment into racial resentment. He racialized this. And that's what made his movement explosive. And so, uh, but in the end, it wasn't the votes of white rural, white working class rural poor. Uh, it was a, it was the votes of white uh, college-educated uh, affluent suburbanites who finally put Donald Trump over the top. It wasn't the white poor. It was affluent white people who finally, in in the end, uh, they they either no one can doubt that he used and stoked racial bigotry and misogyny for his campaign. So white people who voted for him either saying he didn't do that, which no no one can say honestly, or yeah, he did, and I didn't like that, but I voted for him anyway. There are other issues I care more about than that. So uh, I'm a Christian, and you know there isn't much you should care about more than that. So when someone's pushing racial and gender bigotry, uh, that's what you should care most about. Yeah, and I, most white people didn't. As I had, as um, uh, as you were talking, I, I I was just going back to when I had you on before um, in, in your uh, recent book, "Who Stole the American Dream." Uh, uh, put in put into context for me the issues you raise in that book and and where we are today, if you would. Well, my latest book was America's Original Sin. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know why I get who stole the American. Right. My apologies. Racism, white privilege, and the bridge to a new America. But let me answer your question. Uh, this shows that America's original sin uh, is, is lingers on and is alive and well. And so, you know, as I said in the book, the sin wasn't slavery. Uh, that's too easy for white people. Uh, the sin was uh, uh, the dehumanizing of indigenous and kidnapped Africans and saying, if we're going to do to them what we're doing, we can't do that to people who are fully human. So we'll say they're not. We'll say they're not, they're not made the image of God. Imago Dei, we'll throw away Imago Dei. That was the original sin. And that remains. And so, so um, that message was all through this campaign. Donald Trump ran on bigotry. There's no doubt about that. And now he's appointed as his chief strategist, uh, you know, uh, you know, Bannon, who ran Breitbart, who the core to their message is white nationalism and pushing back the demographics that are changing in America. So there's no doubt um, what he was running on. And, uh, you know, and the saddest thing in this country with the elections was uh the overwhelming majority of white people who voted for Donald Trump on all levels, there was not much even of a gender gap there. Uh, all 
levels of white America voted for Donald Trump. And you know what? White Christians voted with their tribe. It was a tribal vote. They voted with their tribe. And so the good news is that during the campaign, we were able to raise up the fact that um, evangelicals of color, uh, African-American, Hispanic, Asian-American, didn't vote for Donald Trump, overwhelmingly didn't. And if you count them in when you say... Uh, uh, on, by 80 evangelical leaders, younger, uh, multi-ethnic, now that the media is finally saying, oh, we, we mean white evangelicals, and I'm saying thank you for that, because it isn't all evangelicals. If you count the votes of all evangelicals, including evangelicals of color, uh, it's split half and half between Trump and, and Hillary. So, you know, this was clear. So I, I was in a d- debate with the religious right person on BBC a couple of days ago, and I said, how do you feel as a white Christian voting against almost all uh, Christians, your brothers and sisters in Christ of, of color? How do you feel about that? That's what you did. They're, you're on one side and they're on the other. What does that say to you? You know. And she got very defensive, as she sure should be, because white Christians who either didn't, who, 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 who didn't care enough about Trump's bigotry to vote against it, have a lot to answer for. So he's their guy now. Now, this is a guy who violates every Christian principle. He's the antithesis of every Christian value, and they voted for him. So he's their guy, and they should stand by him. They should, you know, he he knows that he's their guy. So now it's time for uh, faith, resistance, and healing. We're going to resist him. Um, when, when, uh, he decides, he said he was going to massively deport millions of, of undocumented immigrants, many of whom are, are in our churches, many are leaders of our churches. Uh, well, we're going to make sure that he, he has to arrest a lot of, and the Bible would call them the stranger. And Jesus says, how we treat the strangers, how we treat him. So we want, uh, we're going to force Donald Trump to arrest uh, the immigrants, the strangers, in our churches. Not home alone, in our churches. Push aside the priest, the pastor, and arrest the stranger in our churches. And every black pastor who's calling me on the phone just is terrified by what's going to happen to young men of color in their congregations. Every black parent I've talked to, every black parent, is so uh, too fearful for their, their children. Uh, and white parents aren't feeling that, but black parents are. And so uh, they're afraid of white police now being enabled by this administration to really go after young African-American men in particular. And I think they should, should be afraid. So every well, what I'm going to call for this week is every clergy association, every interfaith, ecumenical, clergy association, multiracial, multifaith, go to the sheriff, the police chief, in every town and city and say, uh, we're going to hold you accountable. If the government won't, we will. We're going to watch, we're going to film, and where it becomes necessary, stand in between your police who don't want to obey the law in regard to citizens citizens of color. 
so if the government won't, if they're looking over the shoulder, well, the Justice Department doesn't care anymore, and the White House doesn't care anymore. Well, people of faith will care, and we will hold police accountable if necessary. So it's time for resistance. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with author, activist, and publisher of Sojourner Magazine, the Reverend Jim Wallace. Uh, Jim, um, has there any uh, potential projects stirred in you uh, since this election? Well, the ones I just talked about, we're going to call it, uh, we're going to call it faith, resistance, and healing. And first of all, faith. Uh, if we do these things, if we stand up to to white police going after uh, young people of color, if, if we stand up to ICE agents who want to arrest people in our churches, it's going to be costly, risky and costly. So the first thing we have to do is go deep, deeper into our faith. And how, it'll help us remember who we are. Um, and for, for me, Trump says America first. No, uh, faith first. And, and uh, we're going to put our faith first, and we're going to have to go deeper in our faith to stand up to uh, what he what he said he was going to do. Uh, and second, re- resistance is a holy thing. Uh, and we're going to see Christians acting in resistance to doing to the things he said he would do. Now, if he doesn't do them, we'll be grateful. We'll be glad. But these aren't things we're making up. These are things he said he would do against Muslims, against immigrants, against people of color, against African-Americans. So, you know, uh, and third, healing, which means we really want to listen and talk to all the people who are willing to have a serious conversation about the way forward, how to build a bridge, as I said in the book, how to build a bridge to a new America. So I want to have real listening conversations with white working-class people who have been left behind, white rural people who feel that no one cares about them, uh, uh, and even white people who who think that counting up the number of racists in the room is really whether we have racism or not. Racism is a sin. It's our original sin. It's the toxicity of this culture. It runs through the culture. And it's not a matter of individual hearts. It's a matter of policy and what's going on. And this man has... Has has deliberately stoked and fueled racism, and that has to be called out. Uh, I just had a recent uh, friend. I it was actually on election night. Sent me uh, the passage uh, from William Butler Yeats. He says, "You know, things fall apart; the sinner cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world." And I'm I was wondering, are you concerned that are we close to anarchy? Or do you feel that, or are you uh, is that just taking it over the top? Well, um, um, you know, uh, I think that democracy is... uh, Stephen Schmidt, who's a Republican commentator, Mm -hmm. Steve Schmidt said um, before the election, um, the fascism that rose up in the 1930s didn't do, do so because it was strong. It did it because democracy was weak. And so I think democracy is very weak in this country. I think the lack of trust in institutions, I think the, the complete lack of willingness even to accept facts or to take facts from media sources that 
just our editorials time and time again. Um, uh, no common ground, no common space to talk. Um, the fact that most Trump supporters don't even know anybody who voted for Hillary Clinton and the other way around. Um, the We live in parallel universes now in this country. It's very racialized by our geography. So I think democracy is uh, very weak because the system, uh, the economic system, as Bernie Sanders and Trump said, is rigged. It is rigged. And it's rigged by and for the people at the top, and the people, uh, other people are, are really being left, left behind. That's true. And politics follows the money. And so uh, there, there's a, most people in this country for some time have, have think we're going in the wrong, wrong direction. Now, Trump is the worst person, I think, in the country to fix that, but that's what he ran on, and that's how he won. And so democracy is very weak. So the, the, the thing that we have to remember about Trump is not just he's a racial bigot, which he is. He's also an autocrat. He has taken great pride in his, uh, his autocratic style of leadership, the strong man, the winner, uh, who does whatever it takes to defeat his opposition. This is what he admires in himself and even people like Vladimir Putin and other strong men around the world. So the danger of Trump is not just his bigotry, but his autocracy. And so um, I think it's very important that those who are protesting uh, do so, but do so in a different way uh, than his way. In other words, we have to protest with our values uh, and not descend to his level the level of people that are so, so supporting him. But I think uh, resistance uh, is called for. You know, as you were, as you were talking about the, uh, the weakness of democracy, and, and, I'm, and I'm not asking you this, uh, as, as a Democrat, I'm asking you this just as an observer about our system, that in the 20th century, we did not have a single election where the loser received more votes than when the, the losers see less, uh, the winner received less votes than, than the loser. Um, hadn't happened since the 19th century, where I think William Henry Harrison was the last one. We've had it twice this century. Uh, huh? Does that say something to you? Oh yeah. Well, I think I think the electoral college is an old, antiquated uh, system, and now we've had it twice with Al Gore and. And now uh, with Hillary Clinton, so I think what happens though is, is the, uh, the electoral college becomes an issue of conversation like this for a few weeks, and then it continues. <laughs> so I see no efforts to change that, and certainly popular vote should determine elections. But our system is an electoral college system, and. Uh, it doesn't look like that's changing in the near future. Now, and, and, and the other piece is, is uh, speaking with Jim Wallace here, is Jim, you, as you well know, whenever a, a, a party or a candidate loses, uh, they um, will, will reflect on what went wrong. And oftentimes, 
um, those conclusions, especially for the party, are, are, are reactionary. We lost because of this. And so you, and so the, the way to win is to react to why we lost. Um, do you see, what do you see the Democrats doing? Uh, what do you see them doing? And then what should they be doing and from your perspective as a man of faith? Well, I don't know what the Democrats are going to do. Um, and part of the reason I, I don't know is if you talk to progressive people of faith around the country, we all believe that the Democrats have dissed religion and have done so for a long time. And so uh, they're not really talking to progressive people of faith. Um, and so they should. And uh, I actually am a friend of Keith Ellison's, and it was announced today that yesterday that he's going to run to be the chair of the party. And Keith Ellison is the uh, congressman from. He's the congressman, and he's the first Muslim to be elected in Congress. Uh, he's an African American, and uh, he's already talked about the need to make the Democratic Party the party of working people again, working class people, and not the party of. Uh, uh, you know, a, a liberal elite, which it is now, in my view. Uh, in fact, a liberal uh, elite that doesn't challenge, the, uh, as Bernie said well, doesn't challenge uh, the people economically who are running the country. So that's what, that's I mean, we lost also because we, uh, the candidate running for, for the Democratic side did not inspire or enthuse uh, people to to come out and vote, uh, like Bernie enthused people, and Clinton just didn't in the, in the end. And so he wants to make sure the party, uh, Democratic Party, supports working people again. I think he's right. I also think Keith understands religion and respects religion and knows how in all of our social movements in this nation's history, uh, Religion played a very active part in in morally um, uh, catalyzing and and uh, um, really inspiring, motivating uh, social change. And that, at our best, that's what we can do. You have the religious right, uh, an example of the, the other kind of politicizing uh, and wanting to have its its uh, views enforced by the government, but you also have from abolition to women's suffrage to the civil rights movement, you see religion being a moral force that can really change public life. And I think Keith Ellison gets that. And I hope that if he becomes DNC chair, that he'll sit down with progressive faith leaders and have that conversation. The, in the, in the last election, um, uh, obviously, the, the turnout was as low as it has been in almost in over a decade. Uh, some 90 million eligible voters, it's estimated, did not uh, vote, which essentially makes the apathetic party probably the largest political party that we have right now. Uh, how do we change that? Or can we change that? Or is it just some of the things you, you talked articulated with Representative Ellison, or is it, is it more that needs to be uh, taking place? Well, we we have um, uh, it, it's still a lot harder to vote than it should be in this country. Harder to register and to vote. It's much easier in many other countries around the world. Um, and in fact, 
there are forces in this country, particularly on the Republican side, that want to make it hard to vote, that want to make it hard to register. In fact, they're trying to deliberately suppress the votes of minorities. Even courts have said that about Republican proposals in places like North Carolina. So you're going to see under Donald Trump, I mean, Donald Trump's, he ran on, uh, you know, against the changing demographics of this country. He ran against those changing demographics and for and, and trying to involve people who don't like the way the culture is changing. So I think a Trump administration or or Republican governors in most of the state houses will have deliberate campaigns, efforts throughout this four years to disenfranchise minority voters. They will they've already bragged about doing that in places like North Carolina. So I think you're going to see deliberate disenfranchising. Uh, instead, we should make it easier for people to vote, and and we haven't. So number one, it should be a lot easier to register, a lot easier to vote. Number two, um, uh, you, you need candidates who are willing to run against uh, a system that really has been rigged by money and by power. And Bernie did that, and you saw the response. Trump did that, and you saw the response. So candidates who basically are supporting the status quo is how Clinton was perceived by an awful lot of people, uh, aren't going to bring more people out to vote. And finally, I think what the president said this morning, Obama said this morning, uh, voting matters. It does count. And people who... Um, who aren't happy with the way things are going, who are complaining or protesting. Like, I, 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 I'm encouraged by protesters in the streets as long as they remember their values, our best values. Uh, anarchy isn't going to help us, and violence is going to hurt us. Uh, but how can we... But I want to ask them all, I hope you voted. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I hope you, 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 you cast your vote your, your in a meaningful way for for uh, uh, one of these candidates. And, and so I think uh, protest votes and symbolic votes finally aren't very helpful to taking the country in different directions. So I think uh, making it easier, uh, candidates that are willing to stand up against uh, the system in the ways it's rigged, uh, and three, um, uh, you know, really... Explain, explain to our kids how important voting is. Trump teaches us how important voting is. To, to your last point about voting, I, I, I know for those who are sports fans that um, 49ers quarterback uh, Colin Kaepernick, who um, would not stand for the national anthem, and that got quite a bit of attention, um, also sort of was very di- appeared to be dismissive, let me say it that way, for not voting. Uh, is that as if it did not matter? So I, I, don't, I don't know if you had any thoughts about that, or is that uh, is that sort of part of the problem that you're that you're raising in this larger context? Well, uh, Kaepernick uh, did something that I thought was was uh, uh, I, I deeply admired what he did. In fact, uh, you, you know, I'm an older guy, unlike you, and I'm a member too. You say like athletes. me or unlike me? <laughs> Unlike, unlike you, you're a young guy, man. Oh, you're but, kind. But, but I remember, 
on on my college wall in Michigan State, I had this big poster of two Olympic athletes with their fists in the air. <laughs> you remember that? John Carlos and, and Tommy Smith. John Carlos <laughs> and Tommy Smith were heroes of mine. And Kaepernick is in that tradition. And so uh, many athletes have responded in like form. And I'll, I'll say I, I'm, I have, uh, uh, I've not stood up at our national anthem in games for many, many years because of what's going on in this kind of country. And so, and, you know, uh, so to, to me that, that was taking a stand uh, that I support. Now, um, but voting is important. Voting is not the most important act of citizenship because there's so much we have to do and say and stand up for in between elections. But voting is critical. I, I, I got to walk up the Edmund Pettus Bridge, the bridge is on the cover of my new book, uh, on the anniversary, 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. Uh, I got to walk up there. Yeah, the president was there and the first family, and and that was great. But I got to walk up there with the foot soldiers who were there 50 years ago and literally risked their lives and almost lost their lives. John Lewis, who was mm-hmm. there, was almost beaten to death. And now they're in walkers and canes, and they got to walk up that bridge, and I got to walk up beside them on the anniversary. It was one of the most um, blessed moments of my life. And they fought and died for that. So I don't want anyone to think that's um, not important or a waste of time. And I think Trump may may, uh, make some people understand how important voting is. And then when you vote, uh, the election doesn't go. I've, I've never seen Sojourner staff in our day after the election. I've never seen so many tears so much pain uh, in this week of reflection. I've heard it on the phone. I've heard it all over the country. I've seen it. Uh, And so you take a breath and you rest and you pray and then you, you get up and you fight and you resist and you stand for what you stood for before. And, uh, and you know that finally, uh, uh, our public acts, as your show tries to say, our public uh, participation is a moral choice around moral values. And for many of us, it's an act of faith. Jim Wallace, author, activist, publisher of Sojourner Magazine, thank you so much, my friend, for being on the public rally today. Bless you. Bless you. Take care. That was the Reverend Jim Wallace. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. Democracy gives and democracy have taken away. That is the perennial edict for the cyclical nature of politics. And it is the epilogue for Donald Trump's stunning victory over Hillary Clinton. Trump's victory is the greatest political upset in modern American politics in my view. Unlike Harry Truman's 1948 victory over Thomas Dewey when polling essentially stopped sometime in September, 
Trump outperformed the polls that, according to Real Clear Politics on Election Day, gave him only 17% chance of victory. For roughly half the country, President-elect Trump is the outsider who will change the culture of Washington. To the other half, he is the Manchurian candidate of unpredictability. Can a divided nation negotiate such polarities? In a change election, there is not much interest in returning to the same political party for three consecutive terms. In fact, it has only happened once since the ratification of the 22nd Amendment, which limited the president to two terms back in 1951. Trump's victory was the return of Andrew Jackson, old hickory from Manhattan. He spoke to those who were angry and frustrated with the current state of America in a key that was pleasant to their ear, and in return, they rewarded him with the keys to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But the Republicans' victorious night does give cause for concern in terms of our democracy. In 2014, they were rewarded with gains in Congress after shutting down the government and harming the nation's credit rating. Earlier this year, they ignored the constitutional responsibilities of advising consent by not holding hearings for Supreme Court nominee Merrick Garland and paid no price as evident by the 2016 election results. Is this the formula for victory? Are we collectively supportive of a concept that allows the one to step outside the spirit of our constitutional values if it meets with our short-term desires? Or should we assume that victory covers a multitude of sins? Such questions potentially reflect on the sinister side of cyclical politics. Only time will tell if this unfortunate trend going forward or, or if the citizens, regardless of political affiliation, will recapture a no-tolerance policy when it comes to our cherished democratic values. In the meantime, we are all in the uncomfortable position, reminiscent of the closing scene from the movie The Candidate, asking, what do we do now? On one final note, the public morality sends its condolences to the friends and family of Gwen Eiffel who lost her battle with cancer. From the PBS NewsHour to Washington Week in Review, she exemplified professionalism and dignity, and her passing is a loss to all who still believe in the fourth estate known as journalism. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can email me directly at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And for those who wish to listen to the archive broadcast, you can find those at publicmorality.com, or you can listen on iTunes. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.